NATO's Secretary General makes a surprise visit to Kyiv and says Ukraine is gaining ground in its counteroffensive against Russian forces. The stronger Ukraine becomes, the closer we come to ending Russia's aggression. Russia could lay down arms and end its war today. Ukraine does not have that option. Plus, the visit follows yet another night with dozens of Russian drone strikes on Ukraine. 44 drones were targeting Ukraine, as 34 were destroyed by Ukrainian air defense. Most of drones were again targeting Odessa region and port infrastructure. And later in the program, women serving in Ukraine's military are now finally getting their own uniforms. Today is Thursday, September 28th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint. Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg made an unannounced visit to Kyiv on Thursday, where he noted that while Ukrainian forces face fierce fighting, they are moving forward and gradually gaining ground in their counteroffensive against Russian forces. Every meter that Ukrainian forces regains is a meter that Russia loses. And there is a stark contrast. Ukrainians are fighting for their families, their future, their freedom. Moscow is fighting for imperial delusions. Speaking at a joint press conference with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Stoltenberg announced that NATO now had overarching framework contracts in place with arms companies worth $2.5 billion for ammunition and military equipment. This covers capabilities like 155mm artillery, anti-tank guided missiles, and main battle tank ammunition. This will help allies to refill their stocks while continuing to support Ukraine. Zelensky emphasized Ukraine's need for more air defense against Russian attacks, saying Moscow had used more than 40 Shahed drones and strikes on Ukraine the previous night alone. For more on the latest Russian attacks, I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. So another tough night in Ukraine, a tough night due to the drone attack by Russian Federation. What was confirmed by the Ukrainian officials, 44 drones were targeting Ukraine, a 34 were destroyed by Ukrainian air defense. Most of drones were again targeting Odessa region and again we're talking about uh, port infrastructure. Also uh, Kirovograd region and Mykolaiv region were under attack and according to Ukrainerho, Ukrainian main energy operator, one of the substations was damaged in one of the regions. Energy infrastructure is yet again uh, one of the main targets. And it sounds like though there is some reporting that progress is being made. Actually, a couple of days ago, we've heard from the commander of the Ukrainian armed forces in the Zaporizhia region that uh, some great news are soon to come. And today, the Institute for the Study of War confirmed that reportedly Ukrainian forces made certain progress in the Zaporizhia region. And uh, also, we're hearing similar news coming from military located in that area. So apparently, Ukrainian forces had some success in the Zaporizhia region, but it's better to wait until final details to come. But it looks like some good news for Ukraine are coming soon. 
And NATO Secretary General made a surprise visit to Ukraine to meet with President Zelensky. What was the reaction in Ukraine from President Zelensky? Probably one of the main comments that President Zelensky made during the press conference that basically this visit yet again demonstrates that de facto Ukraine and NATO are allies and are in deep cooperation and just a question of time when Ukraine will join NATO. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Lawmakers in Washington have just a few days left to avoid a government shutdown that would furlough millions of federal employees, leave the military without pay, disrupt air travel, and potentially wreak havoc on the U.S. economy. One of the main sticking points is disagreement about aid for Ukraine. I spoke with VOA congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson for insights on the stalemate and particularly the funding for Ukraine part of the equation. So it's been really fascinating to watch the growth of opinion in the U.S. Congress, particularly among House Republicans, about that aid. You know, when Russia first invaded Ukraine more than a year and a half ago, the aid to Ukraine passed easily amongst Democrats and Republicans. But bit by bit, as we sent new tranches of aid to Ukraine, there started to be some unease among House Republicans that we were either sending too much aid while there were economic concerns domestically here at home in the United States, and that perhaps the aid to Ukraine wasn't being properly overseen. There were concerns about corruption and and how that money was being used among Ukrainian officials. And a lot of that was driven by conservative talk media, conservative cable media who were raising these concerns. And House Republicans started to listen to that and hear from their constituents that they really needed to pump the brakes on the aid to Ukraine. So we just had another vote about it late last night, and more than 100 Republicans voted to strip that out of a spending bill. So it really looks like anything, if they're able to pass any temporary government funding bill, it is absolutely not going to have Ukraine aid in it. That is a non-starter for House Republicans. President Biden is seeking $24 billion for Ukraine. The Senate seems to be in pretty much an agreement with that support. Most in the Senate, it would appear. Is that correct? It's an interesting situation over in the Senate. There are certainly some Senate Republicans who have expressed concern. A lot of top Republicans on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee have pushed for more oversight of aid. And they said that it was a very encouraging step that an inspector general for oversight of all Ukraine aid was appointed last week. There were individual inspector generals at different agencies, but they were really pushing for one person to oversee all of it. Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, has been a real mover and shaker in terms of keeping the Republican caucus over on the Senate side united. He continually emphasizes that Ukraine aid is an important U.S. policy, that it protects our strategic interests, and that we are really just spending pennies to the dollar to defeat one of our biggest enemies on the world stage. And so it is worth it to go and do this. That said, there's still some some naysayers over on the Senate side, and it's going to be difficult to ultimately reconcile the House and Senate Republicans on this issue. Right. If there are members of the House that are absolutely refusing any sort of bill that includes any funding for Ukraine, the president's not going to sign it, I would imagine, if there is no support for Ukraine. So where does that leave us other than shutting down the government? (laughs) Exactly. You know, and there are other 
broader policy disagreements between Democrats and Republicans. Ukraine aid is not the only area of disagreement, but it is one of the major ones. And just to step back and remind the international audience of how the checks and balances in the U.S. government system work, the Senate has to pass their version of spending legislation with the Ukraine aid. The House has to do the same. Then they, the two chambers, have to agree on that to send legislation to President Biden to sign it into law. And as you said, you know, President Biden is not going to sign anything into law that doesn't include some sort of Ukraine aid. So whether that's a compromise, they have a lower number, they have a higher number, that's what they're going to have to be figuring out. And in the meantime, it looks like the government is going to shut down. Wasn't all of this already agreed to by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden the last time we came close to the edge here on funding the government? That's absolutely right. So back in May, listeners may remember that the U.S. was in danger of hitting the debt ceiling, which is our kind of our credit rating for the world stage. And Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed with President Biden to certain spending cuts and caps. And now it appears because of pressure from the conservative wing of his own Republican Party that he is going back on that agreement with President Biden. All the other members of congressional leadership have abided by that agreement. But now because Speaker Kevin McCarthy's speakership is in danger from those conservatives, he is dialing back on that agreement. So that is throwing an additional wrench into this whole very, very complicated system. VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson, we thank you so much for the insights. We appreciate it. Always good to join you. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Robert Fitzo, whose party appears tied for the lead in Slovakia's parliamentary election on Saturday, says he would end military support for Ukraine and block the country's path to NATO membership while opposing sanctions on Russia. As Henry Ridwell reports, Ukraine's Western allies' fear of Fitzo victory could prompt other countries to question their support for Kyiv following Russia's 2022 invasion. Robert Fitzo's smear party is the narrow front runner in Slo- Slovakia's upcoming parliamentary elections. He has promised to end military support for Ukraine. At a recent rally, Fitzo told supporters that he would not send one more bullet from the country's reserves to Ukraine. Slovakia has until now been a strong supporter of Ukraine, donating its fleet of Soviet-era MiG-29 fighter jets and an S-300 air defence system. Fitzo says such support prolongs the war. He opposes sanctions on Moscow and says he would block Ukraine from joining NATO. In an interview with the Associated Press, he said the combined weight of the US and the EU should be used to force the warring parties to sit down and find some sort of compromise that would guarantee security for Ukraine. Fitzo's party is polling around 18% not enough to give him an outright victory. He has served as Slovakia's prime minister twice before. 
Fitzo was forced to resign in 2018 after the slaying of investigative journalist Jan Kusiak and his fiancée Martina Kuznirova prompted mass protests. Since then, Slovakia has had four different prime ministers in five years. Fitzo appears to have regained his support, partly on the back of his calls to end support for Ukraine. Dominika Haidu is an analyst at the Globsec think tank in Bratislava. Slovakia has historically had quite a large uh, portion of the society with pro-Russian sentiments. Fitzo has tied support for Ukraine to Slovakia's economic problems. Again, Dominika Haidu. So just to give you an example, uh, by, by providing military support to Ukraine, we are taking security guarantees from Slovakia. By providing financial support to Ukraine, we are taking money from Slovaks who need it more, right? Fitzo sees Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban as a future ally in taking on NATO and the European Union over Ukraine, say analysts. Grigory Meseznikov is from the Slovak Institute for Public Affairs. He says he thinks Fitzo is not brave enough to become a single dissident. But now that he's got Orban, he's got a solid point to adhere to. So he will join Orban. He has become very authentically pro-Russian and spreads Russian narratives, Meseznikov said. In several other Western countries, populist parties skeptical of the West's support for Ukraine enjoy significant support. Again, Dominika Haidu of Globsec. I'm afraid it might cause a, a bit of a domino effect, especially in countries uh, that are awaiting elections. And I mean, we're already seeing in Poland that uh, the, the issue of support is Ukraine is being brought up. Polling just behind Fico is the progressive Slovakia party, which is strongly pro-Western and supports military aid for Ukraine. Analysts say coalition negotiations will be difficult for any party and the elections are unlikely to end Slovakia's political turmoil. Henry Richwell, VOA News, London. Global food prices are rising as nations limit exports. Countries are trying to protect their own supplies as the combined effect of the war in Ukraine. El Nino's threat to food production and the increasing damage from climate change takes a toll. I spoke with Joseph Glauber with the International Food Policy Institute and former chief economist at the U.S. Agricultural Department for insights into these trends, particularly when it comes to Russia's war on Ukraine. Countries are definitely trying to protect their own supplies. I know it's partially due to the effect of the war in Ukraine, among other things. But specifically, the warring nations, they're both major global suppliers of wheat, barley, sunflower oil, and other food, especially to developing nations. What's going on for the most part in wheat and corn markets, those prices, they've fallen. Don't get me wrong. The war has been uh, very disruptive in terms of global trade. The fact is that Ukraine now is producing about 35%, 40% less than what it was producing pre-war. And that's likely to continue into next year, which I think is a deficit that has to be made up in the rest of the world. Russia, on the other hand, they've had a record crop last year. They have a very good crop this year for wheat. They are having a very strong exports. And so I think that commodities like wheat have been available in developing countries. My organization, the International Food Policy Research Institute, did a little study just last month that looked at wheat consumption in sub-Saharan Africa. And indeed, 
that had fallen a little bit last year. But remember that the, for the first part of 2022, we saw very, very high wheat prices. And so countries where wheat is an important commodity, but not the main source of calories, there, when you see high prices, you'll see less bread consumed. And so I think that that is something to consider. That, that's as opposed to, say, North African countries or some of the countries in the Mideast where a wheat consumption is, you know, 50% of calories consumed. And there, you know, we saw very little change in consumption because countries stepped in and subsidized bread, bread prices or other things. If the blockade of grain exports from Ukraine is not resolved, will there be additional shortages in feed for livestock and fertilizer and other look, food look, supplies? The, the big impact is on Ukraine farmers. The blockade has really hurt Ukraine farmers in the sense that they don't have a cheap way to get their grain to the rest of the world. And because of that, that means that they have to absorb far lower prices to make their grain competitive in world markets. That's one of the reasons why we have seen production in Ukraine fall so much uh, this, this year and why we see some switching from grains to more profitable crops like oil seeds. That will continue as long as the other thing is you do have a war going on, which is affecting production in those occupied areas and in areas that, that are particularly on the front line of where the fighting has been. But in the rest of the country, it's really low prices that are really having the big impact. And I think that's going to continue as long as the war is going on and as long as the ports in Odessa are, are partially blockaded. I mean, you do see some grain moving out now, uh, largely through ports on the Danube. There have been these initiatives to try to move through the so-called peace corridor to get grain out. But the real issue right now is that Ukraine is producing a lot less grain than it was pre-war. And I think that is unfortunately a deficit that has to be made up by other producing countries. And this year, we were able to do it with large crops out of a number of different countries, including Russia. But unfortunately, we're not rebuilding stocks. And I think that's the real concern I have longer term is that stock levels aren't being rebuilt so that we can buffer the impact potential impact if we were to have a drought or other major disruption to supplies outside of Ukraine. Because right now, unfortunately, it's equivalent to having a very large drought in Ukraine right now because they just aren't able to produce more than essentially 60-65% of what they were producing pre-war. Joseph Glauber with the International Food Policy Research Institute. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Wednesday formally apologized after the Speaker of the House of Commons praised a Nazi veteran in the chamber while Ukrainian President Zelensky was present. In a few moments, I will address the House in front of all Canadians, in front of Jewish people here and around the world, and Ukrainians, to offer Parliament's unreserved apologies for what happened on Friday. The Speaker was solely responsible for the invitation and recognition of this man and has wholly accepted that responsibility and stepped down. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. It was a horrendous violation of the memory of the millions of people who died in the Holocaust And it was deeply, deeply painful for Jewish people. It also hurt Polish people, Roma people, 2SLGBTQI plus people, disabled people, racialized people, and the many millions who were targeted 
by the Nazi genocide. Russia used the incident to back up its baseless assertion the war in Ukraine aims to denazify the country. Trudeau said Ottawa had also reached out to apologize to Kyiv and President Zelensky through diplomatic channels. I also want to reiterate how deeply sorry Canada is for the situation this put President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation in. It is extremely troubling to think that this egregious error is being politicized by Russia and its supporters to provide false propaganda about what Ukraine is fighting for. Friday's joint session was about what Canada stands for, about our steadfast support of Ukraine's fight against Putin's brutality, lies and violence. It was a moment to celebrate and acknowledge the sacrifices of Ukrainians as they fight for their democracy, their freedom, their language and culture, and for peace. This is the side Canada was on in World War II, and this is the side we are on today. The House of Commons Speaker also apologized and has since resigned. There are 42,000 women that serve in the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainian Defense Ministry officially approved the female uniform only this August. Before that, women wore the same uniform as men or turned to volunteers who sewed female uniforms for free. Lisa Bakaletz has the story from Kyiv. Maria, an officer of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, tries on a military uniform for women for the first time. Why haven't I seen this earlier? It's just gorgeous. Maria, who did not give her surname, says this is the most comfortable coat and pair of pants she's worn since she started her military service. The model is very cool. Look, the pants are exactly on my waist, not lower, not higher. In addition, they are adjustable. I can fix and make them narrower if needed. Maria joined the armed forces as the Russian full-scale invasion began in February 2022. Like other females in the Ukrainian military, she says she received a male uniform. It's like a uniform from an older brother. They gave you something and you had to adjust it for your type of body. The smallest boot size started from 40, but I'm a 36, so I waited a long time to get shoes that fit me. Officer Olga Bigar spoke with a VOA from the front line. We are in the Bakhmut region, performing tasks related to the deoccupation of the territory. Bigger says her pants fit so poorly, they often lasted just one mission. They were practically for one-time use. You go on some combat mission, fall down several times, and the seams are already split. Now Olga Bigger and Maria have military uniforms for women thanks to volunteers from the Ukrainian social initiative Arm Women Now. We collected samples of women's uniforms from other armies worldwide. The NATO standards and uniforms of the USA were used as a basis. Also, we comply with the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense's requirements for male uniforms. Volunteers have been making the women's uniforms for a year. Women who are serving on the front line get the uniforms for free, others pay a flat fee. Irina Nakurak says they were tested for safety and comfort on the training grounds. 
приталеність пов'язана з тим. A fitted jacket is essential when a woman wears a bulletproof vest. Otherwise, there are lots of folds from the excess fabric formed. In summer, when the temperature is high, this extra fabric rubs, creating discomfort. This August, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry approved women's summer field uniforms that are expected to be available by the end of the year. Visually, the uniform is similar to our general military uniform. It's designed according to a female figure. Smaller shoulders, slightly shorter length, narrower sleeves, and a waist that can be adjusted. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense says there are a total of 42,000 females in the Ukrainian military, 5,000 of them soaring in the combat zone. Lesia Bakalets for WIOA News, Kyiv. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you very much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.